Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Insider Podcast, brought to you, as ever, by Flanishing Inc. Today, not on the line, but in person, I have Dominic Twos. Dominic Who's, you may say, because it's unlikely you know his name. But Dominic Twos is a magician, an author, an indexer, we'll get on to that later, and, possibly most importantly, a student of the late Fred Robinson. Dominic Twos. What's your origin story? You have 47 seconds. My origin story? Mm -hmm. Uh, My origin story is I was born out of my mother. (laughs) And I think I've beat your time limit, haven't I? (laughs) You have. (laughs) I meant your magic origin story, Dominic. My magic origin story is a very tedious one. My eldest brother brought a friend home from university when I was about 10 who did a very simple trick using the glide. And I remember it now. Uh, And that's what got me interested in doing card tricks. As I said at the beginning, you were lucky enough to be taught by Fred Robinson. How did you meet and how did the mentoring start? Right. So... I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to answer a different question because it leads up to it. I was given Royal Road to Card Magic as a teenager, which we all know is the best book I could have possibly been given. And that saw me through school and university. Then after that, I moved to London. And I was in a bar in London, which was in the Marlborough Arms, which some of you may know is a pub off Tottenham Court Road, very close to the Magic Circle which is where magicians used to gather. And I was in there and I saw this old guy at the bar with a pack of cards and he was doing stuff that wasn't possible. <laughs> I mean, I had the I had the raw road to card you magic. Knew what I, was going I on. knew what could be done and this this was something else. And I bought him a drink and we chatted and I persuaded him to give me lessons. Um so how did you have to prove your worth? That, well, I mean, the, the interesting or was just buying th- him a drink the, enough. The, that was he was easy. Yeah, <laughs> the the interesting thing was I heard later. I can't remember who told me, but I heard later that what impressed me was I was interested in him rather than in showing off to him what I could do. He had to ask me at some point to show him something so he knew I had some sort of chops um but it was it was that it wasn't all me 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 I was interested in what he had to tell me do you remember what the first when you saw him doing the tricks do you remember what you saw him do yeah absolutely very vividly uh and in part in part it was because whenever he performed it, I mean when I met him he was he was in his 70s uh and he'd he'd taken Devance uh uh, advice to heart that he did about six tricks, but he did he knew them inside out, and he always opened with a set of color changes, uh, which were original to him, um, and just beautiful to watch. Uh, and that's I had to learn from him. You were in good company at that period in UK magic. It was like Pat Page and Elmsley and Gordon Bruce and Peter Duffy. What was it like hanging out with those guys? It was because you were like young compared to them. I was, yeah. It was, it was extraordinary. It was. Fred and I became good friends, uh, and we. Uh, so he, he used to come to my house to give me lessons, which uh, that was his choice, but it peed him off because I lived in Kentish Town at the time, and 
every time he came, the Kentish Town escalator was out of order and he had to walk up the stairs. And every time he came, he said, that's, I can't remember, 250 steps I came up. <laughs> um, but after we finished with the lessons, we used to meet every Monday at the Marlborough Arms and people would come from all around to see him. And so I'd get to know them. I remember sitting with him, Alex Elmsley and Roy Walton just chatting over a pint and that's just magical days. How much magic was done then or was it just like shooting the breeze? Was Elmsley like saying, oh, I've got this new idea? Or or (laughs) were you just talking? That that session, nobody did any magic. But other, other sessions, yeah... Yeah, you saw some great stuff because there was always lovely magic going on in in, in the Marlborough Arms. One one uh, uh, story in particular: uh, Gordon Bruce, fantastic magician from Scotland, uh, he used to come down. Tended to be he, he was in an orchestra, and it tends to be when his orchestra was playing south, he'd come in and meet us, and that was great. Uh, and I remember one occasion <clears throat> we were sitting at a small table in the Marlborough Arms, and more people were arriving. And uh, Gordon said, hold on, let's move to this bigger table over here. So we all moved over and sat and chatted. And an hour later, maybe, he started doing his card under the glass routine, which was what he was famous for. And it was all, I think it was Slydini who talked about preparing a battlefield. He knew he couldn't do that routine at the small table we were at. And the whole purpose of moving was to get his battlefield right for <laughs> performing that routine, which he knew he'd be doing, but he didn't do it for another hour. Yeah. What? So there was the colour changes. What were the other tricks that Fred did for lay people? Yeah, he did uh, an ambitious card routine called Snap, Crackle and Pop. Uh, And uh, he did a a lovely coin vanish in the tie uh, using Dr. Robert's uh, sleeving from Bobo. And there Um, was controversy about that, wasn't there? Because he toured America and you... Had a discussion with Kaufman about his, oh. him selling a gimmick tie. Well, yeah. So I don't. Yeah. So uh, it's true. On the Genie Forum, Kaufman said we were all disappointed because he came over and we wanted him to do this, and he was selling this gimmick tie instead. And okay, the reality is, I didn't see him lecture in the US, but he never once mentioned to me that he was going to do this. And he'd have had to get... I don't know how he'd have gone through the process of making up these, these gimmick ties. That wasn't... That wasn't in his repertoire of, of stuff. Um, however, I did notice recently, I think it's in a Fred Capp set of lecture notes, Fred Capps had a trick with a coin vanishing a tie, ah. which used a gimmick tie. And I... One, like I say, I wasn't there, but I just wonder if there's a bit of confusion. Now, Fred was... Well known, he was a signalman, and so spent a lot of time. That's absolutely right. He is his, his what he was most famous for was his dealing. Did his, he ever do his, that for lay people? Not so. Yes, but not when I saw him in his seventies. Right, but uh, he 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 was on TV doing doing his deals and doing pharaoh shuffles. He was he was. Really had very good chops. He developed his own uh, dealing method so he could deal seconds, middles, and bottoms all from the same grip. And he. 
not only that, he, he could do uh, two middles from two different positions in the pack. So he could deal out hands, and some would be from the top, some from the, the first middle break, and then from the second middle break. And without then from the, changing position. Without changing position, yeah. Crikey. <laughs> uh, who did Fred admire? Who did Fred admire? Uh, when I knew him, I mean, he hugely admired Vernon. And who doesn't? Um, but also, he had uh, an enormous amount of time for uh, a guy called John Ramsey, who was a Scottish magician, an amateur magician. He was a, a shopkeeper in other life, in real life. Um, and Ramsey... For those not familiar with him, developed a, a, a fantastic uh, approach to misdirection, which just coloured everything he did. And Fred fully adopted that. And what was his approach to misdirection? Uh, Obviously, most people listening to this will have heard of the Ramsey subtlety, which is where he's from. But he did some stuff where he was like <laughs> ditching stuff in a drawer behind the shop. Was that, okay, was that well, true or not? Yeah, well, he was working in a shop, so of course he was. So went, what was yeah. this approach to misdirection but that Fred adopted? The approach to misdirection was, was very, very simple. It was, if you want someone to look at you, you look at them. And if you want someone to look at something, then you look at it yourself. And that's very easily said and really hard to put into practice. It does, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it does require when you're learning a trick, you don't just learn where your fingers go, uh, how you hold your hand or whatever. For each action, you need to be thinking, where should your head be looking? And so if you're doing a, a, a false transfer, you show the coin in your hand, you look at it, then you look up at the audience as you're doing the transfer because you've got no interest in the transfer. And so the audience has no interest in the transfer, and so they're looking at you. Um, but he also... Uh, that mis chain of misdirection has to start right from the beginning. Before you start the magic, you should be accustomed, getting the audience accustomed to looking at you by talking to them. And uh, Fred Capps, uh, somebody else who Fred admired hugely, also firmly believed in, in that. He'd, he'd, uh, if, somebody, if he was in a pub and somebody asked Fred Capps for some magic... He'd say, sure, and he'd reach into his pocket and pull out a pack of cards and take the cards out of the box and shuffle them, spread them, whatever, without having lost eye contact once with the audience because he knew exactly where the pack was, he knew uh, which way around the cards were, so he didn't have to look down at all. And he, Fred adopted that whenever Fred went out. He always had a packet in his pocket. He knew, always had the same card on the top of the pack, so he could go straight into whatever without any fumbling, any thought process, as it were. Sure. Yeah. When Fred was teaching you, what, what, what lessons did he teach you? Is it, was it technical? <laughs> what, what was it like? <laughs> what, what was the lesson with Fred Robinson like? <laughs> it was lovely. I, I kept, uh, thank God I did, I kept very detailed notes um, after each lesson. And I initially wanted to learn the Pharaoh Shuffle from him. Um, and that was what I'd asked for in the first lesson. When I look back at my notes, and he did teach it eventually, but it was his emphasis was entirely on presentation uh, and choice of material and that stuff about looking at the audience 
uh, and being prepared. Uh, and it, the, that's where the emphasis was. He did get into teaching tricks, but how to do it and talking about the acting behind it, talking about the timing of moves, uh, all that sort of stuff was hugely important to him. What was your favourite trick that Fred did? Shall I probably say the colour changes still, yeah, yeah. And that's something you still do today? Right? Oh, always, always. I've got a sequence of colour changes that I do at the start of any card routine, yeah, yeah. Why do you start with it? Uh, several reasons. First, because you get an immediate... You don't have to have a card chosen and put back before anything happens. You've got an immediate effect, uh, and one which works for any audience. They can all appreciate what that is, however much noise there is around or anything like that. And one other stupidly useful thing is you draw it. I will draw attention to the face card of the pack and say, do you know what this is? Do you know what the card is? And then I'll come back to that. There's another point there. Do you know what the card is? And from their response, you'll know how familiar they are with cards. And they might be foreign and they might be calling the card something else. And that's seven of Blackberries. Seven of Blackberries, yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah, the clubs of seven. You, you, you get all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And club you just, seven. Yeah. yeah, you get a good idea of their familiarity with cards straight away. So that's very useful. Um, but yes, that reminds me Basically. another thing that f was particular to Fred, and that was the use of questions when he was performing. Go on. Um, in terms of Patty, he found questions really useful because when you ask someone a question, they will look up at you. Uh, and so he would often ask questions. Do you know what this card is? Uh, do you know why I'm doing this? Uh, and it, like during the ambitious card routine, I'd often see him after one of the sequences say, I bet you'd like to know how that was done, wouldn't you? And nudge them if they were standing beside him. And they'd look up and say, yeah. And at that point, he'd do a top change. Um, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful thing to watch him work. Having a mentor like Fred obviously shaped you as a magician. Hugely. So what advice would you give to somebody seeking a mentor? Because <laughs> it's said a lot, isn't it, on forums and, and magic things. It's like, oh, go and get a mentor. How, how, how do you do that? Well, I guess part of the answer is it's, it's going to be, are you somewhere where there are other magicians who you can get to see uh -huh. because then the key thing is to look around and see what style you admire i mean it was because i saw fred and thought that is what i want to do that's impossible well, that's impossible <laughs> yeah and the, i don't want to do box magic i just something with an ordinary pack of cards that looks just magical so it's it's finding what you want to do now one of the other things you've done aside from be taught by Fred was the indices for the Savon notebooks. How how did that come about? What was it like working through that material? Ah, <laughs> uh, that was so nice. That was so nice. So uh, Bruce sadly died what over ten years ago now. Um, you didn't know him. I'd never met him. So um, how do you start doing the indices for his books? Yeah. So. If, 
for anybody who doesn't know, he kept very detailed notebooks over years and years and years of effects he came up with, effects that he saw Vernon do, Jennings do, whatever. And he never let anybody look at these notebooks. They were entirely private. Um, but years after he died, his wife decided what to do with these. Should I ditch them? Were they too private? Would, what would he have wanted to happen? And she decided he would have wanted them published, so she started publishing them, and they ended up as a set of five volumes. Uh, and when the first volume came out, there was quite a, a mixed reaction. Some people loved it. I loved seeing them. Uh, others felt he never intended them to be published. They shouldn't have been. Others felt they were too expensive. Others felt all it is basically is, is a photocopy of his notes. They should have been transcribed and edited. Sure. Um, but they were what they were, and that's what got published. And I, like I say, I loved them. And I sent uh, Linda, his widow, an email saying, there are different views on this, but I want you to know that some people are really appreciating it. And she was very touched by that, and so we stayed in touch. And uh, when it came... When the last volume started to come in sight, I thought these books need an index and sent her an email. And I think they crossed on the same day that she sent out an email to a few people saying, do you think these need an index? Right. So that's... Uh, but she didn't know you. She didn't know me except through corresponding. Yeah, well, we, I like this book. We'd corresponded <laughs> for a few years by that point. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and so then what happened, what was so sweet, was she was sending me, for the last two notebooks, she was sending me the notebooks as she'd prepared them. So I was the first person ever to be seeing this these notebooks. box of treasure. Yeah. And that was, that was just wonderful. That was wonderful. So how did you go about, because that seems like an awful lot of anal... <laughs> laborious, <laughs> tedious work. Yeah, it was. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> it was, it was, but I just... So, I mean, not every trick in there was brilliant, but I just so loved the... the so I so loved so much of the material, and I'd been so excited by the first couple of volumes that the sheer excitement of being involved in a project like that was enough to... Uh, you through the, the, the pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, after all... When did you get your Royal Road? How old were you? Royal Road, uh, about 10, I guess. And now you're an awful lot older than that. Now, now yeah, Gillard getting on for 60 now. Jeez. Yeah. So after 50 years of doing magic, last year you had your first magic book published by International Magic. I did. Called? I did. Called Impromptu Secrets. And it sold out. And it sold out before Christmas, yeah, which is rather lovely. How did the book come about? The book came about because about five years ago, I remembered a trick that I'd used to do years ago and I'd completely forgotten about. And I thought, I'm not forgetting that again because it's a good trick. Mm -hmm. So I typed it up. 
And then when I remembered other tricks, I tucked them up as well. And so then I thought, I could type up tricks, all yeah. these. I, so gradually I was typing up all of the stuff that I'd come up with over the years. And I thought, there's a book's worth here. But seriously, all I did was I self-published about half a dozen copies and sent them to magicians who'd helped me along the way just as a thank you. People like Gordon Bruce, uh, Peter Duffy, Jerry Sadowitz. uh, Who else got a copy? Me. Oh, I didn't help you, though. Yeah, I don't know why you got got, got, (laughs) a copy. I think it was a mistake. Um... And that was it. That was that was that was the end of that. Job done. Job done. Yeah. But then it was Jerry who was absolutely insistent that this material should go to a wider audience. And uh we had some interesting emails <laughs> because I said, but you're not publishing your stuff anymore. How can you tell me I should publish mine when you come out? (laughs) And uh, I can't remember how he responded. But yeah, then uh, he put me in contact with International Magic and they published it. How did it make you feel? That was just just fantastic. And in particular, because when I was a kid, again, aged about 10, I had a I can't remember now if they were strippers or a Svengali deck, but they were from the International Magic Studios. And I can remember looking at that box and thinking, the International Magic Studios, I wonder what they're like. <laughs> so the fact that they then published the book years later, that was a lovely full circle. How beautiful. It's received huge critical acclaim. Uh, it's, I was so touched, so touched with the feedback I've had, yeah. And like complete strangers are emailing you saying yeah. how much they're enjoying yeah. it and, and famous named magicians are <laughs> telling you how much they enjoy it. How does that make you feel? Because, I mean, you know, everybody, when they see the episode of this and it says Dominic Twos, people aren't <laughs> going to know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got all of these famous magicians around the world emailing you out of the blue saying, oh, my gosh, this material is amazing. <laughs> you're awesome. You're 60 <laughs> and you're not a famous magician. You spent your career in market research. Yeah. How, how does it make you feel to get that <laughs> praise? Waste, I've wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, the it's, market for toilet paper is very big. That's what it's all about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been it's been really really lovely and touching and it's made me very happy. Yeah. What kind of materials in the book? Uh, impromptu stuff, hence the title. Um, but it's it's largely cards, uh, some almost self-working, uh, almost nothing that's knuckle-bustingly difficult. Uh, and most of the car stuff, you just need one pack, nothing else. There's uh, a chapter of some other stuff, like some mentalism effects. Uh, and there's a chapter of material by Vernon that has never been published. What? Who? How, 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 how have you got unpublished Vernon <laughs> material in your book? How does that work? Uh, <laughs> Uh, because years ago, uh, somebody in America sold a manuscript of unpublished Vernon material, and so you just nicked it. He, 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 <laughs> no, it was uh, he auctioned it off, and I thought I want this. 
So I bought it, and uh, I'm still not sure who typed up the notes, but it seemed to me it was from the Milburn Christopher collection. But I, uh -huh. whether whether he typed it, I'm not sure. But it seemed to me whoever did it had a session with Vernon one night, and the next day typed up their memories of it. Ah, so so it, there was, were... it was imperfect, but there was uh, enough good stuff that was clear enough to put into the book. So the, so the mistakes in it, is that like kind of almost having a jigsaw with some pieces missing that you then had to solve the missing... Exactly that, exactly that, yeah. So how do you go about doing that? Just because you've studied Vernon so much it's and you think it's likely that that's possibly that's what he exact, did? That's, that's exactly it, yeah. yeah. I've uh, shared Fred's passion for Vernon material and have studied the bejabus out of it. So what are you working on now? Uh, <clears throat> well, there are two projects... One is a short-term thing, which is years ago I uh, spent time developing a cups and balls routine. Um, I spent a long time pulling together all the sources I could, going back to Hocus Pocus Junior and the like, and studying all the effects possible and all the moves that have been published and thinking about how they all fitted together and then developing a routine from that of the effects that I wanted to use, building towards a climax and then thinking of the moves that best went with those effects. And so, like I say, I put that together years ago and finally I thought, I want to share this. Uh, not everybody does cups and balls routines anymore, for, but for those who do, I thought I should make it available. So that's one thing that's happening at the moment. And the other thing is, uh, once he'd finished with keeping his notebooks, Bruce Savon then went on to keep videos of all his new material. And so he left behind a stack of videos of some incredibly strong material. That and no one has seen. That, no, again, nobody has seen. And uh, Linda commissioned me to write a book of all this material. And it's a massive book filled with superb routines. And Linda's very keen to make this a really high-quality production in honour of his memory, but also to reflect the quality of the book. Uh, this sounds like complete oversell, but it's genuinely, <laughs> genuinely how I feel about it. It was, do you know, I'd come home from work and every no, weekend I'd think, what do I want to do tonight? And every time it was, I'm going to do more of this book because it's so damn good. So it, the book is written, it's inching towards publication uh, it's going to take a bit of time to get it exactly right, but uh, that's something that I'll be very proud of when that comes out. Dominic Tews, thank you very much indeed for taking time talking to us today. We do very much appreciate it, and it was lovely to see you. Well, it's been an entire pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, shall we do the song? 
We love fetishing. We love fetishing. Fetishing. <laughs>